If I lose it and I'm out halfway through, somebody else can come take my notes and finish, okay? I think that's the leadership team responsibility. So whoever's closest will see Mike or, okay. Um, just to add one thing to what Tracy said, for some of you who may be totally new here, the reason we're doing this is because I'm transitioning toward, toward retirement. And uh, my plan is a little over three years from now to uh, hit the road. And uh, all my families on the East Coast are in Fort Wayne, Indiana, or in Knoxville, Tennessee. And when you have kids and grandkids in that direction, you understand. Uh, all we do is spend the time on a road. Matter of fact, my wife this weekend is out in Fort Wayne hanging out with a grandkid. She's not hanging out with my son and his wife. She's hanging out only with a grandchild. They may be there, but they really don't matter. So uh, it's kind of it's sad because every time we talk about going either to Knoxville, where my daughter and her husband and two, grand, two grandsons live, or to Fort Wayne, my wife only talks about the grandkids. And I'm going like, you do know we have kids and, and uh, son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws as well. Yeah, but they don't matter. So um, anyway... <laughs> Just, I don't know if y'all like that or not, uh, but uh, uh, if, if that sounds a little strange to me, she doesn't understand why I don't understand that. So, uh, anyway, um, l- let's get back to scripture today. Okay, the, the thing is, we're in uh, Philippians chapter 3 today, beginning with chapter 3, and we've been in this series talking about uh, the book of joy um, and, and what that means for us. I don't know about you guys, but this is one of the most impactful um, sermon series that I've, I've helped be a part of. Uh, over the last uh, several years, because uh, it really, it really is, uh, really focuses upon the thing that's most passionate. I'm most passionate about, and that's having a, a passionate relationship with Christ. Um, let me ask you a question real quick, and listen up and, and think in your mind right now. What do you think makes you acceptable to God? What do you think makes you acceptable to God? Is it, uh, you know, good works? Is it uh, how often you need to go to church? Is it, uh, what is it? What is it? Uh, well, well, there's a, what kind of raised this issue, and it goes along with what we're talking about today and what Paul talks about. Uh, I get a magazine, actually, I get it online as well. It's called Facts and Trends. It's from uh, Lifeway, which is one of the largest Christian publishing companies in the world. And they have a research department that does research all the time. And, and one of the uh, things in here uh, had some, a lot of different things, but it's, uh, the, the title is Americans Struggle with Basic Christian Doctrine. And this was an online survey of 3,000 Americans. And, and, this is, uh, and there's a whole bunch of areas, but I want to point out a couple that shows that we have some confusion in regard to this question about what makes us acceptable to God. Um, one of the questions was this, by the good, or one of the responses was this, uh, what, in regard to salvation, uh, is it by the good deeds that I do? Uh, do I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven? 52% of people said yes, okay, in America, okay? Now, those same people that responded also responded to this, this one and said this, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Same people, 60% of them said yes. So I can't figure out how that works. I don't know about you guys in math, but that's... That's not higher math. The same people said, yes, only Jesus Christ. And they also said, 52% of them said, well, yes, but you have to add some good works in as well. And I partly contribute to my, to my uh, 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 salvation in a real sense. Uh, I thought another one was interesting here as well under the, 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 
the heading of sin. Um, um, <laughs> this is how people's opinion about sin is. Everyone, and this is the comment, everyone sins a little, but most people are, are by nature good. 65% of the people agreed with that statement. Uh, that most people by nature are good, uh, but everyone sins a little. Uh, and then on the other end, I would say, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Uh, only 19% said yes. And so, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it says we have some confusion about this whole deal. And so we're going to talk about today what Paul says about, what the Bible says about this issue of what makes us acceptable to God. Um, see, Paul himself, if you've been, been with us this series, Paul himself is writing from prison. Um, and he's not sure if he's going to be released, and he's not sure if he will be executed but he's, he's, and he's, he's about in, in chapter 3 to warn the Philippians, but he doesn't warn them about what you think he's going to warn them about, about, you know, don't do these bad things, you won't get in prison like I have. He warns them about something else because he's more concerned about the Philippian church and their wholeness as a church than he is about his own uh, situation where he's in prison. Because if you, have, if you have your Bibles, whatever format you have, I mean, turn to Philippians chapter 3, we'll begin with verse 1, we'll be, look at verse 1 through 11 today, and then next week Dan uh, Baker, our children's pastor, is going to take us through uh, the last part of the chapter, and then in the following week Chris is going to take you through the first part of chapter 4, and then the last week of the series I'm going to take you back through the last part and end up the series uh, in regard to this. But today we're going to look at this. Finally, my brothers, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. He's already talked about this in other letters as well. And then he says this. Now, I want to say this to you when, you when we read this. You do not get the strength of the language in the English. Okay? Some people can express themselves pretty boldly. Right? You're thinking about somebody right now, some family member, some friend, your spouse. I mean, you know, I don't know what it is, but can say things harshly sometimes. It, this, this doesn't sound, any, in the English, it doesn't sound anywhere near with the passion, the vehemence that, that Paul says. It says this, he says, look out for the dogs. Now, he's not talking about Fido, okay? He's talking about feral dogs that are out roaming around and causing trouble. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he says this, and we don't understand this because we don't understand the culture. And, and it, but he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When I read this, I, I, I kind of ask myself, what, what's he talking about here? Who's he telling the church to look out for? Because if you know the history of the church, you go all the way back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 17, you'll see where this whole thing of circumcision came in and why it's a big deal. Because in chapter 17 of Genesis, what you see is God making a covenant with the people of Israel that they will be his people. And one of the things that they were to do, the men are to do, uh, are to be circumcised. And if you have to have, look, know what that is, go talk to somebody. Um, and, 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 uh, and they're to be circumcised as a symbol of their covenant relationship with God. So it was a big deal in the Old Testament. Huge deal. And so all the Jewish people saw that as being a sign of their covenant, the relationship with God. Now when Jesus Christ comes, no longer do we have to be, have that because he gives us something else that shows we have a relationship with God. What is that? It's called the Holy Spirit. It's what it says in, in Acts 
And Jesus talks about it as well. No longer do we have to be, and, we, and the whole history of the early church in Acts, as you read through it, is about these battles going back and forth between people that are called the uh, uh, people that are uh, the people that believe you have to have circumcision, the Judaizers, as they call them, and people that don't. So there's this whole history of that. But the Philippian church is dealing with it once again because Paul has come in, and basically the people in the Philippian church are Gentiles. They're non-Jewish people. And so one of the things these, these, these people who believe that you have to be circumcised to be not only Jewish but to be Christian as well have come into the church and they're pushing their agenda. And Paul says, hey, he said, look out for these people. They're dogs. I don't know if you call your you know, people even by a dog, but that's what he's talking to them. He says they're evildoers. And then he uses kind of an interesting, they mutilate the flesh. Just think about that in regard to circumcision and you'll understand what he's talking about. It's kind of a little play on words here. He uses as well. So Paul talks about that. See, the, the dogs are the ones who, in a sense, mark their faith in Christ by what they do and what they don't do. And, and, they, and the Judaizers were ones who basically uh, had this, this whole list of things that they do well or, or, or they're better than other people. Well, I don't do this, and, and I, but I do this. And that's how they measured their spirituality and their connection with God. Uh, and, they, and they used this as some kind of evidence of their superior spirituality and their higher quality goodness. But Paul says to watch out for that kind of faith because he says it's empty. And he, then he goes on. And to demonstrate the emptiness of this pursuit, Paul puts up his own self on the scales. He's going like, okay, if you think that's important, all these things you're doing, let me tell you about me. And so in verses three, uh, 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul kind of one-ups them, you know. I, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I am blameless. Paul's saying, hey, if you think that, that this that I, I'm not one who thinks, understands this. He says, I have done all the things that you think are important to show how that you have a relationship with God. And I've not only done them, but I've done them well. I've done them better than anybody. Paul's kind of boasting here about that as well. But he does it for a point. It's kind of like us saying, you know, to somebody, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian because I, I, I've never missed Sunday school in my life. Those who grew up in Sunday school church, Okay. Or I've never missed small group, or I, I, I've, I've memorized the New Testament, I've shared the gospel with all my neighbors, I've never said a curse word in my life. I don't even go to R-rated movies, <clears throat> except the one that was about Jesus. The Passion of the Christ was R-rated, didn't know if you knew that or not. So, <clears throat> see, Paul's saying, hey, look, you know, I understand where you're coming from, guys, these these people, these mutilators of the flesh. But he says in verse 7, then he says this, but whatever gain I had, whatever I gained from all those things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let me ask you a question. How do you know? How do you know if you're putting more confidence in what Christ has done for you or in your own works? How do you know if you've done that or not? If you're putting more confidence in what Christ has done for you on the cross, or you're still kind of like, well, you know, what I, what I do for God is, is, is uh, you know, is earning me brownie points. Well, let me tell you how to do this. How do you know? Well, if on an occasion you were to, this is hypothetical, by the way, okay. If on an occasion you were to stumble, 
and not obey or, or, and disobey Christ, when you, if, that, if you ever did that, would you, do you feel less of a Christian and do you feel less of a follower of Christ because of that? Or on the other side, in a week when you've read your Bible, gone to church, and talked with someone about Christ, do you feel more acceptable to Christ that week? I have to ask myself those questions. Yeah. Sometimes that's the way it is. See, if you answered yes to these questions, you and I have not understood that your righteousness and our righteousness, our standing before God, depends entirely on Christ's righteousness. That's what Paul is trying to say to us here. See, whatever good came from self-improvement project uh, that we try to do on ourselves, it still didn't earn, uh, using a good southern term, a lick of grace from God. Didn't give us anything. Because none of it ever approached the utter perfection of who Jesus is. It just won't work. And in the end, it leads only to disaster and confusion in our lives. And it's a losing game. But to be honest with this, you know, I'm not saying that going to Sunday school or small group or reading your Bible or doing any things are bad. But it, 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 as a means to or a measure of our righteousness, these things will always fall short. Always. They'll always fall short. So Paul is unpacking these reasons for you to pursue Christ at all costs because even if you get all these, if you get all these things in life lined up, if you did everything perfectly, uh, all these good morally superior attainments, and if you clean your life up and manage to somehow struggle and never have uh, uh, ever again, you will never get to where Jesus is because he's perfect. And in the end, if you look great and sound great and act great, but you don't know Jesus, who cares? Who cares? So that's what Paul's saying to us here. And then he goes a little bit further. Uh, Paul says, okay, that being the case, yeah, I have, I've attained all these things. That being the case, verse, uh, verses 8 through 11. You're going like, we're going to be finished in a minute here? No. I am going to read these verses, though, real quick. Hold it after I take a drink of water. Okay. Then he says this, verse 8. Indeed. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Then he says this, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. The first two chapters talk about that. Okay? If you, if you don't know what he's talking about, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've lost my, 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 my ability to, to be on my own. I'm in prison. I've been, had all these things happen to me. I've suffered in numerous ways in my life. I've had all those things. I've suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then he continues, verses 9 through 11. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He uses the word rubbish. Now, once again, translated from English to, uh, uh, from Greek to English, we lose this kind of, kind of the, what he's talking about here. Paul says, all the things that I've done, all this good stuff that I've done, I mean, I was like the best Jew you could possibly be. I was a Pharisee. I kept the law. I knew the law. I knew everything. I did everything perfect. I was born of the right tribe, of the right, you know, I was, I was of the upper crust family. I was everything you could be. He said, that's all rubbish. And really the word in Greek, 
I can't say it here in nice company, but it's kind of a word that deals with excrement. Okay? That's the nicest word I could think of. And some of you are still asleep, so I'll just say it. It's crap. That's what it is. That's what he's saying. He's saying all of that is just excrement. It's dog do. In comparison to what Christ wants me to do. Just, he wants to say it strongly to us. He's going like, it doesn't mean anything because all we do is we work for these things and it really is not what God wants us to do. So Paul's saying if you're to pursue righteousness, what are we trying to do? We're not pursuing knowledge about Christ. What we're doing is let him be the goal. So why should we go after Jesus, go hard after Jesus? It's not to know about him, it's to know him, to know him. See, since Christ is infinite, there will always be more to him than we can possibly know. Even if you and I live to be 150, which I don't believe any of us is going to do. I don't know if I want to or not. You haven't, if you lived that long, you would never begin to even begin to unpack the fullness of who he is. There's always more of him to be had. So Paul's pleading with us, hey, don't get led astray by the legalists, those who worry about doing right and wrong things as a way of getting to God, and don't get caught up in secondary pursuits. Know him. I don't know about you guys, but when I read scripture and when I read church history, I'm amazed by, the, by certain people, men and women who walk this, this path with God with kind of an angst to see and savor Jesus. And, there aren't, uh, and, it's, and it's not found in everybody, but they're found throughout Christian history and in the Bible as well. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the guys that just, uh, he's a great writer, but you've got to understand his life, Augustine. Augustine, uh, in, in his uh, book Confessions, which is a Christian classic, uh, he says this, now this is Augustine, so it's kind of flowery, so just kind of put up with it. He says this, but where in all that time, uh, that long time, was my free will? And from what deep, sunken hiding place was it suddenly summoned forth in the moment in which I bowed my neck to your easy yoke and my shoulders to your light burden, Jesus Christ, my helper and redeemer? How lovely I suddenly found it to be free from the loveliness of those vanities. And if you know, Augustine guy experienced everything in life. He was away from God before he became a Christian. So that now it, is, it was a joy to renounce that I have been so afraid to lose these things. So for you, cast them out of me, O true and supreme loveliness. You cast them out of me and took their place in me. You are sweeter than all of the pleasures of the world. Now, someday you want to sit down and read through that and think about it a little bit. But what he's saying is this is a guy that has more than anything else this deep desire, this deep, passionate pursuit of God in his life. And Augustine found God sweeter than any other pleasure, and he had experienced everything in his life. Another guy that always amazed me is a guy who's really, his little book, he's only written one little book, and he's, he's a dead guy. He's been dead a long time. But his name is Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence wrote a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. I read it. I have it on my, in my, in my, uh, um, <clears throat> uh, on my iPad. I also have it a, 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 a copy of it I've had for years. The Practice of the Presence of God. And it's probably the most confounding expression I've ever ha- read of the pursuit of Christ. And, and he writes this. Now, listen to it, then I'll tell you what I think about it. He says, I am presently recalled by inward motions so charming and delicious that I'm ashamed to mention them. Now, to this day, I've had a theological education. I have a clue what he means. 
I don't know what he means, but when I read that, I read about somebody who has a passionate desire. If you read the Practice of the Presence of God, a little tiny book. This guy was a monk who served in a kitchen most of his life in a monastery. And in the midst of this menial task, what he does, he pursues God in everything he does. It's, every, it's everything about his life. And he had this sense of experience that God is... is totally other. He's, he's t- entirely foreign to us, and yet he was captivated by that, and he, was, and, and he took us away. I, I don't know about, but I, I'm just amazed by people who have this, this deep desire for God. And then we read in Scripture, and I could read tons of Scripture, but I'm just going to read one passage out of Psalm 63, which has always been a favorite of mine, because I'm always drawn by the grace of God uh, to people who have this passionate pleading for more of God found in Scripture. And David says this, David says in Psalm 63, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. And my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing Lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. That's what David says. This, do you get into that, this passionate pursuit of God? It's not just like, okay, God, I'm going to church this week and sitting in a row on Sunday morning. That's going to be my pursuit of you. This is more than that. So when Paul says, going back to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, when Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, he's saying all the persecution, all the suffering, all the pain, all the daily dying to self, and all the wasting away of the flesh that I've gone through, all those things, when he compared it to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, being with Christ, and becoming like Christ, they don't compare at all. They don't compare at all. See, the joy of the Lord, and this is what the book of Philippians is about. It's about joy. And it's not about joy in the way we think of joy. Because we think of joy for some reason in the Christian faith. This is what drives me absolutely insane. We feel that if things are going well in our life, and we call ourselves a Christian, then we must be blessed. I don't read that in Scripture. Because God's blessing is not always things are perfect. God's blessing is that he takes us through the tough times in life and he leads us and he helps us to grow closer to him, to know him more through these times. And so Paul, when he began uh, Philippians chapter 3, he said, finally rejoice. He's going like, hey guys, I've been through all this stuff. I want you to know that's not bad. So finally, I want you to know, rejoice. So what moves you? What, what are you passionate about? J.I. Packer, a well-known author, said it this way. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So the question is this, what is the main business, what is your main business in life? What do you see as the primary thing you're to be doing in your life? Is it to make money? Is it to get married? 
Is it to be entertained? What do you want to pass on to your kids? What do you want them to grow up to be? See, in the Bible, men and women who passionately pursue the Lord, we also see examples from church history and all these different things. But the question for me is when I read those, and this is a personal question, but I believe it's a question for all of us, is this. Why don't we have the same passion for God that we see in these people? Why don't I? Why are we so easily satisfied with just mediocrity in our relationship? I believe so many Christians don't have joy in their life because they're dissatisfied with just a little bit of God. Just a little bit. Why is this sense of soul deep angst so uncommon? Because I don't see a lot of this groaning after God in myself sometimes. And I find myself far too easily satisfied with my relationship with the Lord. And I begin to think about this. And I begin to think, in our culture, where we live, I think I know why we are satisfied. I didn't have any idea for a while after I was saved, but I think I know a little bit better now. I think we often misunderstand our faith and put all our weight on a moment in time, on our conversion. We, get all, we, we focus all of our attention upon the point when we come to Christ, you know, helping people to come to Christ. And it's a, that's an important point, right? Coming to Christ, knowing Christ, accepting Christ. And we, we will accept God's grace, God's unmerited favor for that. But then something happens in our lives, and then once, once we're saved, we, we kind of go, go in a different direction because then from there, then on what we do is uh, we forget what Paul says in Philippians 2.12 when he says that we should work out our salvation as God works in us, do it with fear and trembling. And he says, why? Because he knows that the living out of the gospel, the deepest riches of our hearts and lives will involve lots of dying to self on a daily basis. We have no problem dying to self once to follow Christ, but we have a problem with following Christ and dying to self every day. See, Jesus says we must take up our cross daily. See, Paul takes the long view of life. He knows that if we will daily share in Christ's sufferings, which he says in verse 311, he says in in the end we will share in Christ's resurrection. So we need to accept God's grace every day. We, we don't just become a Christian because of God's grace, then the rest of our life we live out of works, trying to earn God's favor now that we've gotten God. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but the thing is, is that this is a big deal. So the question we need to ask ourselves on a regular basis is this. It's a complimentary question to, you know, why do we do good works? And we need to ask ourselves this question, if we really want to have all of God, all that he wants us to have of him, is this question. What moves me toward Jesus? What moves me toward Jesus? Not knowing about Jesus, but moves me toward him. What stirs my affections for Jesus Christ? What is it that stirs you to know him, to love him, and to worship him? And let me tell you this, it'll look different for different people. It's not like I could have one size fits all because all of us are shaped differently. 
But it'll probably involve several things. It'll probably involve scripture. It'll probably involve prayer. It'll probably involve some form of worship. Now, worship is not just singing, okay? That is a form of worship, but it's not the form of worship. So what is it that incorporates the word, the prayer, and ultimately builds your heart in worship to God? For me, it's this. This is my example. I know the times that I have known God and feel like I'm, not just feel like, but know that I'm closest to him when times when I'm in solitude, this is what works for me. And I get away from all the distractions of life. Now, I know I can't do that every day. But I've been through periods in my life, and I'm going to do more often in the future, periods of time where I get away for a day or occasionally for two or three days. And I just spend time with God. For me, back when I was in Virginia, it was back hiking on the Appalachian Trail with just my backpack and a little bit of snacks and a Bible and my back then MP3 player. Great, good worship music on there. Because worship music kind of calms my soul. It's got to be the right stuff, though. It's not frenetic, you know. And for me, I know that is what draws me close to God. And so why would I not spend more time there developing my relationship with God than just going through the hectic, crazy stuff of life. See, it also is important to pay attention to that which stirs your affections for Jesus. You'll be to, it also, we need to identify that which robs our affections for him, our passion for him. You know, for most of us who've been saved for a while, it's probably not the big things in life that, that draw us away from Christ. I mean, I don't really get tempted by drugs or alcohol, or perverted stuff. I mean, I really don't. It's not those things that drive me away from Christ so often. What it is, it's the, it's the morally neutral things. Things that aren't necessarily bad, but they're not necessarily good. They're just kind of morally neutral. And I'll give you some examples of that. One of the things I found myself that I can be very, very drawn to, it's going to one of them is going to happen this afternoon. You know what happens this afternoon at 5.30? And this is just one example of it. It's called sports. I love sports, okay? I don't like them as much as I used to. I love playing games. I love playing tennis. I love doing stuff like that, playing golf. I'm not very good. But anyway, the thing is, it doesn't matter about that. But the thing I have found this, I can't follow sports too closely. You know why? Because I will start to care about them too much. I will start becoming so, I mean, how dumb is it to be emotionally affected by how, what some 21-year-old does with a football? Or 18-year-old or 16-year-old does with a basketball? How, how, I mean, some of us can get our day ruined by the outcome of a game. You can. I've been around you. Right? How dumb is that? Now, there's nothing wrong. I love sports. Play sports. Do sports. But don't make it your God. Don't make it your passion. If that didn't get you, some of you are going to lie. I don't like sports anyway. I can't watch too much television. Because I will find myself, you know, when I'm burnt out and I've gone through this process, I found myself vegging out in front of the TV a lot. And it's not this. I wasn't watching bad stuff. I was watching morally 
Well, sometimes not morally neutral because it's getting worse and worse all the time. But the reality is, is that if I watch too much TV, well, here's what happens. I un unplug from the holy things of life. And before I know it, I'm laughing at the things the Lord calls wicked because it becomes, it becomes insidious. Uh, it goes into my life. So I can't watch too much. And I think the thing that probably affects us all in regard to our relationship with God and place and having a passion for him is just plain busyness. I think it's Satan's number one tool in our culture because for some reason, our pride says we have to try everything. We have to, we have to make, help make sure our kids try everything too because they might grow up stunted. Did you try everything when you grew up, when you were a kid? I mean, I went outside and played in the yard a lot. I remember that. I know it's, I'm old, but, you know, I mean, I remember it. We did have TV. We watched the radio occasionally in my day. But the reality is, is that, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, I don't have to do every, I didn't have, my parents didn't have to have me entertained 24 hours a day. Or in a sport 24 hours a day or in some activity 24 hours a day. The reality is, is that what they can do, that business can cause us to be so overwhelmed, so overstressed that what we do, what do we do? We unplug from God. See, there are some things that rob my affection, some things that move me toward God. And you know what the Bible says about that? He says, in Hebrews 12, 1, it says this. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And the reason it tells us to do that is this. Even morally neutral things can become sins when they come between us and God. And we need to be careful. Paul's saying, hey, if you want to have a joyful life, make number one your passionate pursuit of not just knowing about God, but knowing him. And just like it does with any relationship, the relationship with God takes time, and it takes focus, and it takes energy. So let me just close by asking you these, these two questions again. And these are something you can write down and think about and I hope we'll not only think about them, but act upon them. Number one, what stirs your passion for Jesus? What stirs your passion for Jesus? And number two, what robs you of your passion for Christ? What robs you of your passion for Christ? And guess what, not what Bill wants you to do. What do you think God wants you to do with those two questions? He wants you to spend more time in the first one and a lot less time in the second if you want to have joy, and if you want to live, live a life that's purposeful and meaningful, and you don't come to the end of your days and go like, ah, oh, I just spent the last 40 years doing that. That's what God, that's what Paul's saying. And my prayer is that you will struggle with it as much as I'm struggling with it right now, because I'm at that place of going like, okay, God, what's next? Retirement for me is not quitting. Retirement for me is transitioning to something different. And the reason for that is because I believe God is calling all of us to grow and to become what he wants us to do. And my passionate pursuit of God may be something else. And I believe he has a, wants you to have that same passionate pursuit. In your, you don't have to be a pastor, by the way, okay? Some of the greatest and most passionate people for God has been people who didn't ever work in the church their whole life. 
And I hope you're one of them. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love, your goodness for us. I pray that you would just enable us this morning, God, to understand how important it is to pursue you with everything we have. I mean, Paul, if you looked at his life from a legalistic, from a works standpoint, man, he did everything right. He was like the perfect Christian. He was the perfect Jew. And and doing that, God, what happened was is he realized that all those things were just nothing. They were rubbish. And so, God, we, we pray this morning that we would understand and have the same passion that Paul does. The same passion that says, hey, I can't keep doing the same things I'm doing. And using all my energy and all my strength to pursue things that in the end lead nowhere. Can we come to the same, I hope we can come to the same conclusion that Paul did. That knowing you, Jesus Christ, and following you, and obeying you, and living for you every moment of every day is the greatest use of our time and our resources. And God, ultimately, it brings you glory as well. So guide us now, God, as we go our separate ways today, as we sing this closing song, that we would uh, ask those two questions. What is it that helps me to pursue you, God, that that helps me to get closer to you? And what are the things in my life that pull me away from you? And today, God, we would make a commitment to begin to pare off that list of things that pull us away from you, God so that we can spend more time doing the things to help us draw close to you. And God, when we do that, regardless of our circumstances, whether we're in prison, whether we're going through a horrible time, whatever, we'll still have joy. Thank you, God, for your word and the guidance that gives us. Now help us to live it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. y'all stand with us sing this out Lord I want Lord